Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure having you join us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Nate Lachman, to discuss how telemedicine can be beneficial to the post-acute and long-term care environments. Take it away, Nate. My name is Nate Lachman. I'm a partner at Foley and Lardner and chair of our national telemedicine and digital health industry team. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have two distinguished gentlemen with us to talk telehealth technology in the post-acute long-term care environment. They hail from the West Health Institute, Dr. Zia Aga and Michael Kurland. In Dr. Aga's role as Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President of Clinical Research, Medical Informatics, Data Science, and Telehealth, he advances West Health's mission to enable seniors to successfully age in place with access to high-quality, affordable health and support services that preserve and protect their dignity, quality of life, and independence. Prior to joining West Health, Dr. Aga was Director for the Health Services Research and Development Division at the VA San Diego Healthcare System and Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego, where he is still teaching. Dr. Aga received his MD from Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan, and an MS degree in clinical epidemiology and completed a general internal medicine fellowship in health services research from the Medical College of Wisconsin. Michael Kurland has been working in healthcare for over 25 years and has served as a clinician, administrator, strategist, consultant, and departmental leader. Michael received his BSN at Drexel University School of Nursing and went on to receive his master's degree from Johns Hopkins University in organizational dynamics and strategic human resources. His accomplishments include multi-state EMR implementation lead for University of Pennsylvania Health System, information services lead for the nation's first for children at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and development of the largest and most comprehensive telehealth program in southeastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware as telehealth director for Nemours. In his current role, Michael serves as a subject matter expert in developing and scaling models of care that use technology for the elderly and change management. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Nate. Dr. Arg, I'd like to start with you. Can you set the stage and maybe tell us a little bit about West Health and what you do? Yes, of course. Thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, to talk to your audience. You know, West Health is a nonprofit organization based in San Diego, put together by the philanthropy of Gary and Mary West. Uh, Gary and Mary are really successful business people who see our healthcare crisis, the cost crisis, and also the aging of America in real time. They are very motivated to do something through the tremendous resources that they can bring together. Around 12 years ago, they started by founding a foundation, the Gary and Mary West Foundation that's in Solana Beach to provide philanthropy and funding uh, for projects and organizations that are focused on these two areas. We then started a medical research institute around 10 years ago. This is our 10-year anniversary uh, to really start to develop the data and knowledge and to define the models of care that can address these two areas. And then a policy center was soon to follow, uh, understanding that we need to then leverage our knowledge, our data and findings to influence policy. Uh, to enable successful aging in America. 
Well, so it's sort of a trident approach with three different um, legs of the stool, so to speak. Yes. Yes. So the focus is on, you know, providing resources through the foundation, uh, providing new knowledge, new models of care and evidence through the Institute, and then providing uh, information and advocacy through the policy center. Uh, and each of these organizations works uh, on the same platform that we discussed with you earlier, you know, successful aging and lowering the cost of care. And it's important to think of these two as, as sort of very integrally uh, tied together. Uh, we know that America is getting older. Uh, in around 30 years, the population of seniors is going to double. Uh, we also know that that population has unique needs, chronic medical conditions, high rates of hospitalizations and ER utilization. And, and this sort of trifecta of you know, high need, uh, older population uh, requiring a lot of health care puts us in an area where we have to be innovative to think about how do we uh, shift the balance of care? How do we allow seniors to get uh, more care in their home environment, to age independently, and when you think about those areas and those opportunities, obviously telehealth is a key uh, sort of vector that we can uh, leverage. Why don't you tell us about that some more? Why, why do you believe telehealth important to senior living healthcare services in particular? I think there are three sort of large trends that we are seeing. Uh, we know as we engage with our patients and our providers that patients and seniors want to get care in their community. Uh, the burden of traveling or, or, or you know, across town or, or having to receive care at a site that is an institutionalized site, such as a nursing home or hospital, uh, is less desirable. We also know uh, that from a cost perspective, uh, providing services that are sort of a hybrid of, you know, face-to-face and virtual makes a lot of sense in, being, in our ability to both monitor and be proactive for these, for these patients and to prevent uh, episodes of care that often have detrimental consequences, both financial and medically. And then I would say the third thing is the changes that we're seeing in our larger ecosystem in terms of, uh, you know, obviously for seniors, Medicare is the pr- predominant pair. And there's a big shift happening in this nation right now from fee-for-service to value-based care. And once you start to get into value-based care and, and population health, um, the ability to leverage all sorts of interactions, whether it's email, phone calls, video visits, and in-person visits, uh, becomes very, very apparent. Uh, and the value proposition there is very different uh, than for a younger population or a fee-for-service uh, based. Okay, so if we go into it with the idea that telehealth and virtual care services can be particularly useful to increase care, manage chronic diseases, and ultimately reduce costs for the long-term care population, I would assume that every a nursing home and long-term care facility in the United States already has this technology. Is, is that the case, Mike? No, um, unfortunately not. And, and the uptake in telehealth in the post-acute and long-term care community is actually a bit slower than it is in just the, the regular hospital and healthcare system uptake. And there it's been notoriously long for adoption. And you could point at regulatory and reimbursement issues, but Uh, When you look a little bit more closely at it, I think the value proposition for these organizations hasn't really, really been identified and and clear to their key stakeholders within the organization. Because what we're seeing is once the organization and their leadership is uh, well aware of the opportunities for telehealth and decreasing costs and increasing access to their patients, uh, maybe even impacting their CMS star ratings, that it starts to turn 
the tide or the ship that they're steering. They're looking at opportunities and ways to implement it. But it is this educational aspect of learning about telehealth and understanding the value that it could bring for you and your organization that really has started moving moving the adoption. It is really hard for people to get to the other side of that when they're totally focused in on the reimbursement and the regulatory challenges. Yeah. So when, when West Health, when you talk to operators or owners of nursing facilities or LTCs about telehealth, what, what's, some, what's their first reaction that you typically get from them? Well, the first thing I get asked is, what technology should I use? And that is often the wrong question I should be getting asked. I, I turn around and say, well, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? What are the needs of your organization? And when we start talking more, I, I might find out that they've had directors of nursing and upper management staff uh, leaving in a revolving door or that they have a really low CMS star ratings or that they haven't differentiated themselves from their market competitors. So once we start kind of like peeling back and getting away from the technology, what gadgetry should I use and figuring out what it is that they really need to do, that's when we figure out if telehealth is even a worthwhile option for them. What about the patients and the seniors as patients? Are they liking telehealth? Do they want it at, the, at these long-term care facilities? I know sometimes they aren't in a position of power to, to drive the messaging like the operators are, but... What's a senior as a patient take on this? Great question. So we found um, with recent work with the University of California, San Diego, when we did a small project with an assisted living facility that patients, once they were educated about it, they had a few caveats, by the way, that they had to be educated about it and they prefer that it was associated with their own doctor's office. And if it wasn't, that they had a specialist request that they wanted to talk to a geriatrician. When some of those things were, were met, they were very, very satisfied and happy with the telemedicine encounter. And if you look at telehealth in general, that, that assisted living facility project, really, that was almost like the canary in the coal mine for us, because that's what we're seeing out at large. When the, the visit is associated, like the provider from that's doing the visit is associated with the person's primary care office, or it's a specialist that they have a difficult time getting access to, they are very satisfied with it. The other thing I would say is that, you know, we have to look at both what patients prefer and what they don't want. And we know clearly that the patients and their families and even the providers uh, don't really want patients to be shipped off in the middle of the night to an ER um, in a dry, cold ambulance run and then sit there for a bunch of hours and then come back. And if we can avoid these unnecessary transfers by using technology or, or new protocols, um, that is the value proposition right there. They don't want that? I mean, as a young boy, I always said I could not wait to get old so I can move into a nursing home and get an emergency medical transport <laughs> into the middle of the night. It was my dream come true. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, right? Because keep the patient where they are. Who wants to be disturbed? I can speak from personal experience that when my uncle, who's now passed away, had to get transferred from his uh, memory unit long-term care facility to a hospital, when he came back, he was not the same person, right? There's transfer trauma. There's significant shock that doesn't easily go away. 
And so if you could just simply avoiding that by use of virtual care, it sounds like a, a pretty good benefit to the patient. Exactly. And and the thing is, in some way, it's a win-win for everybody. I think for the nursing home or the, or the, or the site, uh, they don't lose a bed when the patient goes away to the hospital. You know, for the hospital, it's a win-win. They're not getting uh, traffic or patients that they don't need to be taken care of, which could have been managed by early intervention in the nursing home. And then the pairs. Uh, are obviously benefiting too uh, by managing the the unnecessary you know cost of care, and of course family. Like if your if your loved one is in the same city as you, you will be sort of you know getting in your pajamas and getting in the car, driving over to the ER to see how mom is doing, and so on and so forth. So it, it really makes sense from a from a perspective of you know multiple stakeholders. The challenge is. You know, we don't have uh, these projects or, or protocols fully embedded. They're, they're still not the usual care pathways. Uh, and that's where the work Michael and his team is doing in terms of developing these implementation guides, doing the workshops, and educating and, and teaching people on how to do this. And then also building partnerships between pairs, healthcare systems, and nursing homes is so critical. We really have our work cut out for us because right now, if you look at the stats, there's about 44,000 facilities in the United States today, encompassing about two and a half million beds. By 2030, folks are anticipating that that number is going to double in the amount of beds. Now, this might be an interesting nugget for your audience as well. About 10,000 people a day are turning 65 until 2030. Yeah. We're going to run out of ambulances and ER rooms pretty soon, so we have to find alternates. Let's hear a little bit more about the uh, the implementation guide and some of these workshops. Tell, tell us about what West Health is doing to sort of train up or educate the PALTC industry on virtual care. Sure. Let, uh, let me give you a little bit of background as to kind of like how the implementation guide came to be. We did have a project with UCSD that, that kind of really dipped our toe into the assisted living world and just opened our eyes to the opportunity. That led to us pulling together what we think the nation's leaders and best are at uh, delivering care to the post-acute and long-term care communities. So uh, we had probably, uh, I think, uh, 11 organizations come here to West Health, meet us in person, and we spent the day kind of just working through the challenges and opportunities in this space. And our biggest takeaway was, was that um, telehealth is still an unknown to the post-acute long-term care space. And if there's anything that we can do to help educate the community, that would have the greatest impact. So with further discussion, we came to kind of landing on this, uh, developing an implementation guide kind of out of the gate. And there's lots of telehealth implementation guides out there, but some are a little too deep. Uh, especially if you're a new person, you get really overwhelmed with a lot of information about the technology, about the workflows, about the business models and propositions. So we wanted to develop one geared towards this community that was just deep enough for them to get started and get familiar with. So if they did have further questions, they would already kind of have uh, a compass pointing them in the right direction as to where they could find uh, more information. So that was the, the background of the implementation guide, but that's just one part of the strategy. The other part is really taking the implementation guide, our learnings from it, and meeting with people individually and as groups and teaching them how to, 
to use the implementation guide and the key aspects of it and answering their questions in person about their concerns and helping them navigate their own organization in implementing telehealth. I mean, it sounds like almost customized consulting, right? Yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, we, we do see ourselves and some of the groups that we have put together when it comes to dissemination. Uh, we don't want to just publish things and stop because that's what happens in traditional sort of academia. We really want to take this one step further and, and develop this this role for our organization uh, to teach people how to do things. And it's, it's like consulting. You're right. Uh, and it's building the resources that people can then use. So there are algorithms and templates and and workbooks that have been created. And the beauty of it all is since we are not a provider system uh, and we are not a for-profit, we can freely give this away and and share it openly as a nonprofit organization. So it's available free, no cost. Anybody can download it and use the resource guide and and scale up or build a telehealth program for their own long-term care uh, facility. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Tell me, how's it been when you sit down with these meetings? So somebody, let's say they read the book, right? Like, this is great. I love it. I have no idea how to actually implement it, right? At my facility. Uh, Mike, uh, Dr. Aga, come out here, meet with me and tell me what I'm doing right and wrong. When, when you do that after meeting with those operators, uh, do you ever do it? Have you yet had time to do a look back or see if, if they've been able to uh, utilize some virtual care services for their residents? Or is it too soon to tell? Well, it's a little too soon to tell, but um, what we're hearing is that there is a lot of interest and that just even our discussion around the topic and, you know, having the implementation guide at hand has kind of given folks the confidence to really dig deeper into telehealth for their organization. You know, we're available by phone calls too. If they're local, we'll try to get out there and meet in person because it's a little bit different when you kind of see the environment and meet people and shake their hands, of course. But a lot of these uh, interactions are over the phone and we, we walk through some of the really high level stuff that help them get started, like really understanding the needs and how ready they are for something like telehealth. The other thing I will add is, you know, as we think about this as a strategy, it's it's a piece of our larger strategy around healthcare models and evolving them. Uh, and what we are seeing is that organizations have to be ready for doing this type of work. And so we're finding good uptake or interest from organizations that are either at risk, such as ACOs, uh, or are participating in value-based contracts and have a need uh, to you know, leverage telehealth as a means for managing their populations. So I think it's a combination of you know having the right environment and the demand uh, for a for a solution, and then us and our partners uh, being able to then offer that solution and make the adoption curve slightly easier, so things can get going. You know, often we think about West Health as a as a catalyst. You know, we try to sort of create the little spark that's going to get things going for people, but. Ultimately, the organizations themselves are the ones that will run with this, and that's that is uh, you know how you would scale it. So I think a lot of people could learn from the concepts in the guide, but uh, is it, am I correct saying it's tailored a bit more towards the operators and owners of post-acute long-term care facilities as opposed to, uh, let's say, I want to develop a telehealth company that, uh, as an entrepreneur, that then delivers services to a post-acute facility on like a B2B basis. Who's the core readership here? 
Yeah, I think the core readership, that's, that's a great question because we've had interest from both sides. Uh, the core readership that we initially targeted uh, are the healthcare providers, uh, but we're getting inquiries from the vendor community as well. They're interested in, in understanding more about the upcoming demand in, in the post-acute long-term care space. And they're recognizing that, hey, this is a space that we need to get familiarized with and start to offer our services. And on the other side, the, the healthcare providers are recognizing that um, this is also a space that we, we, we need to get more familiarized with and how should we do that? And sometimes those vendors and those providers end up having uh, dialogue that help both of their interests. But I think you raise a good point, Nate, that you, know, you need to raise both sides of the equation. Yeah, I think we need to uh, create the right environment uh, for the providers, whether they're for-profit commercial entities, B2B, or sort of a partner, a clinical partner that the nursing home or PLTC has uh, to be, be able to provide the services. And then at the same time, you need to raise the, the bar for the, for the assisted living or PLTC side uh, to be able to integrate and provide these services. So I think it's there, there are clearly, you know, two pieces to this big puzzle that, that are the keystones. Uh, and, and our hope is that this guide, you know, we've tried to keep it broad enough uh, that has learnings for both sides. If you had to make a prediction, guys, who, uh, you, you seem to know this pretty well with this, this, this area. Who, what's going to catalyze uh, telehealth and post-acute sooner? Is it going to be from the operators themselves? Or do you think it's going to be driven by solutions provided by third-party vendors or, or the business partners? If you had to place a bet. So I think if, if I were to place a bet looking at the past, you know, which is one way to sort of predict the future, so far it's, uh, you know, companies like, you know, some of our partners, Karavi and Avera, uh, where they have developed models of, of telehealth in PLTC and then are able to contract and scale through multiple sites. Uh, and that model has been very successful to date and I think is going to keep growing. I think once this does become, uh, you know, once you hit the tipping point, you could see the organizations themselves developing in-house capabilities. But I, if I were to put my money on, I would think it's going to be the vendor community or, or you know, health systems that are going to take the lead in developing these programs and partnering with PLTCs versus PLTCs, you know, because there's, it's not just about the technology. On the other end of it, you need physicians and healthcare providers and teams of, you know, experts, which typically don't reside within a, a PLTC site. Yeah, and I, w- I would uh, go for almost an option C as well. I think the payer community also being educated by the vendor community, um, that combination right there, I think, is uh, it has been untapped. And I, like Zia said, the Averas and Karavis, I know they're, we know that they're talking to payers and educating them as well. And as these value-based contracts come more and more to fruition, uh, they're going to be looking at options like telehealth, especially in the post-acute long-term care space. Mike, with the option C, I love it. Uh, follow the money. I just read today that uh, one uh, large health plan reported a $5 billion profit just in Q3 of this year. So if we're gonna, if we think that the money is gonna help motivate it by opening up reimbursement opportunities, I think it's pretty astute to kind of uh, place a little bit of a bet on the health plans themselves. 
How about this? About instead of players in in the marketplace, what about issues like a change that what would have the most potential to increase uptake in telehealth at uh, PALTCs specifically? Let's hear from Mike first, and then Dr. August second. Well, you're probably very very familiar with this, but some of the CMS constraints right now um, that that really does decrease the uh, palette for adoption just right out of the gate. There's some restrictions that if you, I don't know, I, I read about them on your blog post all the time. It just kind of reminds me and keeps me up at night. I think I think the second thing that 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 I worry about is, uh, you know, for these organizations that are gonna invest in these in these protocols, they need to see an ROI. They need to see benefit, uh, whether it's directly through reimbursement, but also more importantly, indirectly through either better census management, you know, better retention of staff and reducing over staff turnover, uh, better star ratings, and, and a lot of that information has not been captured to the point or sort of condensed to a point where a CFO of an organization can say, yep, this makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that's part of the work we are doing and others are doing is to sort of make the benefits and the ROI crystal clear. Because if you don't do that, no matter how easy it is to do and how good it is, it will not happen. It's really interesting. The ROI discussion was that uh, there was at least a panel at every telehealth conference about proving ROI, getting the CFO on board. Maybe, And those started phasing out, I'd say, about four maybe five years ago, right? And now the discussion is largely shifted to like uh, expansion and execution rather than making the case. But maybe it's still a little different in the post-acute long-term care environment. They're still talking about ROI. Is, is that the case? They're, they are talking about ROI, uh, but they are talking about keeping the census stabilizations really important, the CMS star ratings. All those aren't exactly direct ROIs, the traditional ROI numbers that we we think of. So they have other ones, market differentiation, they want to increase access to care. And uh, Zia mentioned the uh, the staff retention. Some of these organizations that we talk to that are uh, working in, in this space, their nurses have reported uh, increased morale, for instance. And that's just because once the, the telehealth component is in place and everyone's educated, you know, a nurse, when they're calling a physician for help, and this medical director that might be covering that particular facility, they might have several other facilities. So that the time that they get back in touch with the nurse, it could be hours later. And with the appropriate telehealth in place, they're waiting no longer than 15 minutes. And as a nurse, and if you're delivering care, and there's a change of condition that needs to be treated at that moment, you want somebody to respond to you right away. So the morale increases and therefore the staff retention decreases. Uh, just also from a numbers perspective in the skilled nursing facilities, turnover for CNAs and RNs is approximately 50%. And if you're looking at assisted living facilities, it's around 30% for both. So it's really important to try to keep your staff engaged and happy with the right resources to help them do their job appropriately. I think it's fascinating how you're looking at it from multiple different angles, right? Running a, a PALTC kind of uh, organization or facility, it's, it's more than just the patients as consumers, like we see in some of the DTC telehealth 
stuff. Uh, and it's more than just like a software product that maybe the IT or the programmers may, may care about. But you actually have to modulate and care about staffing on all, all different levels, not just doctors. It's a multidisciplinary care team. And, and Dr. Aga talked about some metrics with the R, with ROI and, and other parameters. Is there Are some of those baked into the West Health implementation guide or does West Health have these other kind of tools or calculators available um, to, to folks interested in exploring virtual care? Yes, I think it's important to understand that the, the guide itself, you know, covers, you know, I would say a fair amount of this stuff. And, and by no means is this work completed. I think we are still learning and developing new tools. Uh, but there are cal- financial calculators uh, and reimbursement calculators built into the guide. But on our website, we'll be posting new new data, new information uh, as things are evolving. Dr. Argo, what do you think is the future of telehealth at PALTC? Let's g- give me your prediction, your hot take three years from now, uh, five years from now, and 10 years from now. Three, five, and 10. Three, five, and 10. Well, I can tell you that in in next three years, there's going to be some leading organizations that are going to demonstrate value. Yep, I think that has to happen. Uh, whether it's going to be the ones that we're working with today, or they're going to be some other new players that are that are going to sort of do this work, that's important. And I think that's that's good because, you know, I don't think we're ready for adoption by 100% of the of the centers right now. But you need a critical mass of success stories. Uh, that drive the value proposition, that sort of further crystallize how to do this and what are the best practices. A lot of that is not known right now. I would say in five years, the curve should be getting to a point where, you know, in every market, there are some organizations that are offering this and are differentiating themselves across, you know, their sort of geographical catchment area. And then the hope would be that in 10 years, it does become sort of a standard of care. Well, it's not even called telehealth anymore. It's just it's part care. Of, yeah, it's, it's just care. Yeah, I mean that's how it should be. Mike, what do you think? Give us your three, five, and ten. So I think uh, I'm going to jump to the five year mark and skip three right now because I think three years um, it might we might still be somewhere close to where we're at. Uh, Dr. Aga is always more optimistic than I am. <laughs> uh, I think five years from now we're going to be uh, edging right towards a tipping point where more and more organizations have recognized um, that they are leaving operational capabilities on the table, such as leveraging technology to uh, decrease the impact of geography to access uh, and just to access care. And the the sinking in feeling of less and less providers being available over the next 10 years, I think is also going to start to really make an impact on how organizations are beginning to think about how they deliver care. Because uh, in, in addition to the uh, major demographic shift that you have with the increasing aging population, you have uh, an increasing demand uh, of uh, providers and specialists. So imagine you know, the number of providers going down and the population going up. You're going to need to figure out different ways of delivering care. And in, in 10 years, this is where my optimism really kicks in, is that everyone's a bit more aware and savvy as to uh, what they have to do to deliver care appropriately and in a timely way. I Man, I love it. I love your feedback and insight because you keep wrapping around to the same concept that the two of you started uh, with in the beginning. Uh, at least for virtual and, P- and PALTC, it, it's not or ought not to be about the technology, what the, the product is but the environmental and situational factors which uh, 
cause PALTCs to want and should use uh, virtual care, right? Staffing, prof- healthcare professional shortages, what it's like to to be a resident of a long-term care facility, the economic and financial implications of having a bed hold that's a uncompensated bed for several days as the patient goes to a hospital and back, right? These are all things that have nothing to do with the telehealth technology itself, but have everything to do with how the telehealth technology can solve and address these operational and situational factors, uniquely addressing the post-acute long-term care uh, industry. All right, guys, we're going to go to our speed round. I'm going to hit you with some hot take questions. We'll start it easy. Do you prefer to read hard copy books or digital? Hard digital. copy for me. <laughs> Who's did? Mike, are you digital? I'm digital, man. Wow. Do you have those special blue lens glasses? Uh, how do you not get the eye strain? I do. And I feel like I'm going more blind every day. I have these crazy blue lens glasses. Uh, my wife uh, yells at me every time I wear them. I'm sure your 18-year-old self would be very proud of your responsible decision-making in eyewear. I think I'm wearing them right now. <laughs> Zia's actually pointing and laughing at me. Okay. iPhone or Droid? iPhone for me. iPhone. Nice. Good choice. Good choice. You'll you'll be invited back for a second uh, guest appearance at the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Apple's listening, yeah. How about this? Do you use a protective phone case or do you live dangerously? I've done I've done it both ways. Um, uh, but yeah, right now I think I have a phone case. I just got a new phone a few months back. But <laughs> Oh man, I've got two kids. It's a protective phone case. That's a no-brainer for me. Oh gosh, but what about the feeling you just sit down at like a, a lunch meeting or and you just pull your phone out of the pocket, nothing protecting it, and the other people are like, Oh my gosh, what are you thinking? <laughs> I know that is a cool feeling. I haven't uh I haven't matured there just yet, but one of these days I plan on taking that case off. <laughs> one of these days upon retirement, possibly, right? Uh how about this? You both are you're both really uh tech forward. How many computer monitors do you have at your desk? I have two, Mike. Well, I so I well, watch, technically three. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I walk behind like, the monitor. Yeah, I, I creep up behind Zia when he's working, and I do see like three plus his phone um, going at the same time. So I have uh, I have two plus my phone. Nice, nice. How many do you have? Me, I have three, but I, I kind of think that third one is just uh, showing off. It definitely need two. The third is nice, but. Not necessary. Yeah. So, so my excuse is very simple. It's not because I'm a busy guy or I work really hard. It's because, you know, I, I, when I hit 50, my eyesight started to go down and I refuse to get glasses. So I just have to have font that is so big. I need to monitor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining you having one document, like a website page spread across two monitors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like size 24 font. <laughs> As you're walking by, you can see what Z is reading. I just like when it's wintertime, I like to, to to turn my display brightness all the way up and just get some like radiation tan action going from these uh, triple display setup. But that might be in my head. Well, I'll be sending you some blue, uh, blue glass uh, protection. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, how about this? What is your prediction for Super Bowl 54? I like my team. Uh, I think Aaron Rodgers is going to get a second ring. So I, I, I unfortunately doubt my man i can't say it but i'm not sure the eagles are going to make it uh this year but i gotta tell you do not say tom brady and the patriots i will punch you oh god punch myself (laughs) yeah so um if green bay doesn't make it i think uh the seahawks have 
Russell Wilson is just so good this year. You heard it. Anybody hanging out in Philly, if you see Mike Curland, he uh, put he cast his bet with the Seattle Seahawks and not the Philadelphia Eagles. You better watch out. I think my boys in Philly would be like, you know what, Curl? I think I think you're right. Uh, but uh, I'm still rooting for Philly, you know, but uh, I'm looking at it. As long as they beat Dallas, I'm good. All right. Uh, you gave your predictions. You dropped some knowledge. You educated us. You made us laugh. One thing we don't know is how to get in touch with you. How do we get a copy of this guide, right? Let the people know. Sure. So uh, we could. Uh, we will make sure at the bottom of the podcast is a URL that you could just get the. You could download the guide. You could also reach out to me directly. M K U R L I A N D at WestHealth.org. Uh, just email me directly and uh, I'll provide you all the material that I can. Excellent. So if you want to learn more, go to westhealth.org or you can, uh, in your web browser, search for West Health Telehealth, P-A-L-T-C. It'll take you right to the link and the URL. It'll also be in our in the podcast link as well. I would like to thank both of you so much, Dr. Zia Aga and Mike Curlin, for joining us today, sharing some of your insight and information with our listeners. Well, thank you for having us. It's been a real pleasure. It's a pleasure so much. Until next time, join us. Thank you, Nate. And thank you, Dr. Aga and Michael Curlian from West Health Institute for a great show. There's so much potential in using telemedicine to benefit the post-acute and long-term care environment. The work that West Health Institute is doing to help seniors access high-quality, affordable health care is notable, and we appreciate you taking the time to share it with us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. Thank you for joining us.